This episode of CBO Speaks is brought to you by Kaufman Hall. Learn about their strategic and financial consulting services and Axiom planning software by visiting kaufmanhall.com forward slash higher education. Welcome to CBO Speaks, a podcast from the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO John Walda, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission with this podcast is for you to gain greater insight into the challenges and rewards of the Chief Business Officer role. Find out more from today's episode at www.nakubo.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to CBO Speaks. Thanks so much for tuning in. My name is Megan Strand, your host for today, and it is my great pleasure to be joined today by Connie Cantor, Chief Financial Officer and VP of Finance and Business Affairs at Seattle University. Hi, Connie. Hi, how you doing? I wonder if you could start out today by just telling us the story of how you were first introduced to higher education. Absolutely. Well, my role at Seattle University is my first job in higher education. And so uh, really my introduction in terms of the university came about um, after a career in the corporate world. I had uh, really started out uh, in high-tech manufacturing companies, came to Seattle about 30 years ago with Hewlett Packard right after an MBA. And I worked at a number of high-tech companies uh, over about a 20-year period and then uh, got married a little later in life. I was 41. My husband was 47. We had never been married and we went through the conversation of kids, no kids, whatever, and decided if it happens, it happens. And after two and a half weeks of marriage, it happened and I was pregnant with my first. Oh my goodness. So that was pretty exciting. And I actually took seven years off uh, from the corporate world and from work altogether uh, in my 40s. Uh, during that time, I did a lot of volunteer work. So a lot of uh, work on boards and, and volunteer organizations, uh, different nonprofits in the Seattle area. And when I went back to work, I first worked at my kids' school for a couple of years. And then I went back to a startup company that was just really exciting time for the company. Uh, again, a high-tech manufacturing job, so my typical role. Um, the challenge for me was it wasn't an industry that I cared a lot about. Mm. And I think it really made me think about the mission of an organization in a way that I hadn't previously. I was fortunate. My first CFO job was at a defibrillator company. And literally, I would walk into work every day. And the mission on the wall when I walked in started with, we save lives. And it was really compelling to be working in an organization like that in health sciences. And certainly as a stay-at-home mom, I felt, you know, tremendous commitment in terms of what I was doing. Um, finding myself in a company in the beauty industry, um, I realized it just wasn't a mission I cared about at all. Mm -hmm. And I knew that my next step had to be something more mission-focused. And so we sold our company to the largest beauty company in the world, L'Oreal. And immediately thereafter, I went and found this job at Seattle U. Now, how did you how specifically did you find it? Because it sounds like that's a pretty dramatic jump from one industry to academia. Absolutely. Okay. So in the, in the world of it's crazy, but it can happen. <laughs> um, we were doing our dog and pony shows for the potential suitors, you know, of our company. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it was a busy time and, you know, we were really pretty stressed with what was going on at work. And I had been planning on taking a couple of months off after we sold the business. I figured that it would be a good time to reconnect with my husband, my kids, who I had been massively ignoring while working at the startup. And I decided, you know, I wonder what'll be out there when I'm looking for a job next year. And I typed into the computer, 
Seattle Finance. And the CFO position at Seattle University popped up on my screen. And I'm sure, Megan, there were other things that were on my screen at the time. <laughs> I'm sure it was not the only job that popped up. It was the only one I saw. Wow. And it was just, you know, it's one of those things where you just see something, you've got this laser focus. And I think that for me, um, the mission of higher education was critical. I think also, in addition to that, being a Jesuit institution and the values of educating the whole person and the values of really educating educating our students to go out and make a difference in the world was really something unique about Seattle University within higher education that was particularly attractive. So I actually applied for the CFO job here online via the internet, um, not probably going to be sufficient for them to look at my resume or actually talk to me. So following uh, my application, I then sent an email out to anybody I knew in the nonprofit world or the higher ed world and said, who do you know at Seattle University that might be willing to talk to me? And I had the opportunity to speak with one of our board members and he passed my name on to the recruiter. And it went from there. The recruiter, after I got the job, said, uh, we laughed about it because she said, you know, Connie, I only called you to get that board member off their backs at the university. <laughs> yeah, I know that. And she said, you know, so I figured it would be a 10-minute phone call and um, I'd be able to say to the board member, you know, the university would be able to say to the board member, we called Connie. She's not right for the job. Uh, that first phone call was like an hour and a half. I'm sitting in my car in a parking lot and had to ultimately turn the car on and charge my cell phone because it was going on so long. <laughs> Uh, but that's how I found my way here. Wow. What a great story. Now, talk a little bit about how you're finding this world at having the coming from a startup environment or a high tech background. Can you compare and contrast a little bit for me? Yeah, I can. You know, so I think that um, I had been in large companies in the technology world before going to startups. And I think that having worked at startups, it's a really nice environment to then transition to nonprofit. And it is for two reasons. Number one, you have to roll your short sleeves up and everybody does everything. Yep. Uh, number two, resources are very limited. And so when you're looking at a startup, you know, you're always thinking about your burn rate and, you know, what do you have in the bank and what's your burn rate and when's more money coming in and where are you at in terms of getting your products out to market. Uh, in a nonprofit, you've got a different set of financial constraints, but you're still looking at living in a constrained environment. And so I think there's something to be said for that that transition from startup to any nonprofit, not higher ed in particular, but any nonprofit. So higher ed's interesting. It's really different um, coming out of a corporate world. Uh, I actually was, uh, when I first was offered the job and the president of the university said, we'd like you to start as soon as possible, anytime between the first week in April and the middle of the summer. And right there, I knew there was a different sense of urgency <laughs> in higher ed. Um, that was just a time frame that you wouldn't have seen in the environments I had worked at previously. Right. And I had decided that I would start work towards the end of May because I figured, you know, our year end was June 30th. And that way, if I started in May, I would see one month end close before we got to year end. And I got here May 21st. And the first thing I learned was that we didn't do month end close. We basically only formally closed our financial statements once a year. So that was the first of what became a list of OMGs. <laughs> 
Um, I think it was my fourth day on the job. I went out to my favorite little sushi restaurant by myself and I literally started a list that I titled the page OMG. Um, you know, cause my, my, the president had asked me about, uh, providing financial reporting on a more regular basis to the board throughout the year to let them know how we're doing. And I said, you know, father Steve, I've been here for two weeks, but we've got a couple challenges there. I mean, for starters, we don't budget by month, so we wouldn't really be able to see how we should be spending at any point throughout the year. And we don't close the books till the end of the year. So other than having no actuals and no budget, um, you know, I can try to help, but it's going to be a challenge. So that was one of my big OMGs. Uh, I think the other thing that was a big transition for me coming from the high-tech world and the Seattle environment in terms of work is the level of formality and hierarchy in higher ed. Mm. It's a very different environment than a startup environment. Uh, it's much more formal. And I play into it a little. I wear a business suit every day, so I do dress for the part. But the degree of formality and hierarchy is something that's just a little uncomfortable for me and not something I'm accustomed to. Any other sort of skill sets that you had to ramp up outside of patience and adjusting to different budgetary cycles? So I would say in any environment, there are certain types of people that, you know, certain categories within the group that are really uh, the thought leaders within your organization. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at Eula Packard, it certainly would have been the engineers. I worked for a subsidiary of Eli Lilly. Of course, it was our research scientists there, the PhDs in research. And I think that, you know, certainly the role of the faculty is something that is really an important role here and something that's quite different than where we've been, uh, where I've been in the past is this notion of shared governance. And I think that's just unique in higher ed. Uh, what I found really challenging was that it seemed that not just at my university, but at universities in general, the faculty wasn't always being given the appropriate information to be able to truly and actively share in the governance of the university when it related to financial matters. I think there was just a lot of, lot of I don't know, not secrets really to say, but but a lot of information that just wasn't being shared widely in terms of financials about the university. And then we were expecting our faculty to be sharing in the governance and they didn't have the tools to do that if mm. if we if people like the CFO weren't in our jobs sharing the information they need to do theirs. And is that something you've changed over the time you've been there? And you've been there about three years now, is that right? I'm in my fourth year now, so okay. it's been about three and a half, and um, boy, I've been trying to, you know. Um, one of the things that I did my first year was I went out and did what I called a road show, and it was just an overview of SU finances, I called it. And I basically got the uh, financial leadership together and I said, you know, if we were going to be communicating to campus about what our finance financial picture is and where we're at as an institution, what would be like the three or four things that you'd want to share? And everybody just sort of, you know, we did a little brainstorming and we went around and talked about it. And I put together a presentation that really just was sharing some of the key points in terms of our financials. And I think they're pretty consistent with most universities. You know, if I'm, I'm going to try to remember them now, the first was tuition drives revenue. So at Seattle University, tuition-based revenue is close to 90% of our revenue. Mm -hmm. The second, the people drive costs. So something 75, 80% of our costs are really people-related. And 
particularly as an institution like Seattle University uh, with our orientation towards education of our students, um, we're a high-touch business. You know, we really are very close with our students. We're going to have a lot of people involved, both inside the classrooms and outside. Um, the third point I was trying to get across to them was that we have a lot of deferred maintenance, and we don't have a lot of resources um, in reserves to address that deferred maintenance. It's a problem that we need to be addressing. And the fourth was our debt capacity is pretty much tapped out. Um, I didn't want people to think that was an area we could go. So I actually created this roadshow and went around to almost every school and college within the university and just tried to get invited by the dean. If a dean was a little hesitant, I would encourage them to talk to one of the deans that really liked what I had done. Um, I got very good response, very good response. And then we've done things since then. Um, last year, uh, the president and I went out and he did a roadshow uh, to campus on our financials and where we were at at the fall of last year. And that was something he had never done before in his 18 years at the university. So I think we've bought financial transparency, not just coming from the CFO, but also from the president. You talked a little bit about sort of being new to the environment, having an OMG list. What resources have you turned to or who have you turned to to kind of get yourself enmeshed fully in, in university life and what it means to be a CBO? Well, the first thing that I did, I... Um, immediately contacted when I got the job, anybody I knew that worked at a university, regardless of their role. Um, so, you know, some of them were people in administration, some were faculty. I just wanted to get an idea of the lay of the land before coming here. Uh, I think one of the a sociology faculty member from another institution here in town uh, probably set me on an interesting course when he said, you know, how do you feel knowing that every time you walk into a room with faculty, they're going to hate you? And I just said, no, they're not. They don't know me. You know, they're not going to hate me. Um, but really trying to get a feel of like, what are the issues there? And, and finding out right away that there were trust issues between administration and faculty was really helpful. Um, as soon as I got here, well, actually before I got here, I signed up for the Nakubo Summer Conference, um, you know, the annual conference that Nakubo does. They have a new business officer uh, training program that I did that year, as well as the full conference. That was really valuable. For one thing, I was in a room with new business officers some of whom had spent their entire career in higher ed. They were very helpful on the higher ed side. Others of whom were brand new to higher ed, just like me. And so we were really feeling our way through together. And it provided a little bit of a support system that first year with a couple of the people that I stayed in contact with. I think the other thing is, um, you know, when I first interviewed for the job, the provost asked me a really basic question for higher ed. He was asking me in the uh, night before the interview, and we're in a dinner with the president, the provost, executive VP, and chair of the board. And he asked me about student faculty, ratio, uh, student faculty ratios and asked me whether uh, the ratio we had here at Seattle University was appropriate. And of course, I didn't have a clue. And I, you know, I said to him, you know, well, I really don't know whether, you know, 14 to 1 is appropriate or not, but I can tell you how I'd find out the answer. And about 10, 15 minutes later through the dinner, he asked me the exact same question. I wasn't going to remind him he'd already asked me that question. But at that point, I said to him something that's really my philosophy about everything in life, which is I don't need to know the answers, but I need to know the questions. And then I need to know who knows the answers and have a relationship with them so they might be willing to share. And that's I, I said that in this interview with the uh, provost and the chairman of the board, who had been the chairman of a large uh, company, uh, looked at me and said, I made an entire career out of that philosophy. 
which was great. And I think so. I think for me, the issue is recognizing everything I don't know. And then I reach out a couple of groups. Clearly, Nakubo's one, um, the regional Wakubo Nail I've gotten more involved in. Um, as a member of the uh, Association of, of Jesuit Colleges and Universities. We have annual CFO meetings. I belong to two CFO groups that are in the Western region. And all of those networks are really valuable to be able to get a, a understanding from people. You have such an interesting perspective on this role because you come from a different background than most CBOs, I would say, at least most CBOs that I've talked to. But you've also now been in this role for about three years. So from that perspective, what would you say is the biggest challenge that faces all CBOs today? I think it's the environment of higher education. You know, when I first came here, I, I'm not a big reader, but I read some. I started reading, you know, everything I could get my hands on at the time about what was going on in higher ed and Clay Christensen and disruptive technologies and, you know, the end of colleges and universities as we've known it. I think that's clearly the biggest challenge. And mm. I think it's coupled with, and we've been doing some things here at the university, um, to try to address that and stay in front of in front of that curve instead of having it happen to us mm -hmm. for us to really be uh, in control of where we're at. And one of the things that that certainly has been an aha for me is the recognition as to how hard it is to change, just that resistance to change. And I think that, you know, there was one meeting where I was sort of pushing some initiatives for change. And I have a, a set of initiatives under a umbrella I'm calling planning for financial excellence. This is an umbrella that's had so many different names, <laughs> uh, but I've kept the name planning for financial excellence. Um, but the idea of it was really to try to bring together the basics of new revenue generation opportunities, um, expense control types of opportunities, and then just really how to get into the cycle where we're able to build on our growth. And it's interesting because the change is challenging. Putting financial plans to the aspirations of our faculty is something that's new uh, at a lot of universities. I think it's patently unfair to faculty to encourage them to develop plans that we're unable to fund. Mm -hmm. And I've been a strong proponent of uh, trying to develop achievable aspirations. I somewhat jokingly talk about how we should start a campaign called Kill the Dream Early. The president <laughs> hasn't let me do that. But I just think that some of the lack of trust between administrators and faculty is a result of the fact that our faculty bring forward proposals that the administration endorses mm -hmm. and then is unable to fund. Mm -hmm. And so that's probably the biggest challenge is really having achievable aspirations and dealing with the changing environment. And it's not easy. And at one of the meetings I had with uh, some of my peers, I was pushing a little hard with some of my peers. And the next day, uh, one of the VPs said to me, you know, we realized, Connie, in that meeting yesterday, there were four of us in the meeting. And other than you, the three of us have a combined experience of 90 years in higher ed. Now, it was interesting that he started a meeting with me with that comment because it was sort of a way of saying, like, who the heck do you think you are? Mm. Which is okay. That's, you know, whatever. I can toughen up my skin a little bit. Um, it's interesting when I think about it more, though, because when I went back and really thought about it, the first 25 years these people were in higher ed, it was a different industry and sector than it is today. Right. And perhaps their experience for that first 25 years could be more harmful rather than helpful in the environment we're currently facing. Well, you can certainly see the dynamic. So it, I do think it's fascinating that, that you have this very interesting background in the role that you're currently sitting in. What are you working on that you're most passionate about 
for the future for 2016 and beyond? You know, I think some of the things we're doing under planning for financial excellence really are the things I'm most excited about. Um, really, in looking at that, I try to bring uh, Ignatian pedagogy, uh, St. Ignatian, who founded the Jesuit order, uh, and really use some of the concepts and model from Ignatius pedagogy uh, in, in the financial decision-making roles, which has been interesting. And the first thing that you really have to understand in terms of looking at things in that approach is what's the context we're in and what's our experience. And so really the, some of the first things we were doing was really getting an understanding of what is happening in the higher education environment at a larger scale. And our, we have a vice provost who's also our VP of planning who really took the lead in terms of really understanding that higher education world. And then the next step is really what's our experience? What's Seattle use experience when we look back uh, given the context we're operating in? And so we just put the finishing touches on a comprehensive financial model at the university. Hmm. It's looking at each of our schools and colleges as a revenue center uh, they had all been told they were cost centers, which I found sort of inter interesting when I was interviewing and they were, the deans were asking me about this notion of responsibility-centered management and where are you going and do you know about RCM and whatever. And I, I, of course, didn't know anything about it, but it's, you know, it's, it's sort of basic. It's what's your profit, what's your, you know, what's your revenue and expenses in any business unit. And so in our comprehensive financial model, we did two things. Number one, reframing our, our financials to look at each of our schools and colleges as a revenue center, um, allocating all of our revenues and expenses, both direct and indirect expenses, um, out to those schools and colleges using what I would call an all funds approach. So instead of just looking at the operating budget, really looking at all resources that the university has to bring to bear, both endowment income, gift income, reserves, and just really looking at the, the whole picture. And it's a, enabled us, again, it's not giving us the answers to anything, but it's allowing us to know where do we need to dig deeper. And we brought that down to an academic uh, reporting unit level. So it's within the school and college, we can actually dig deeper and deeper to see just where are we at in terms of our revenues and expenses. And we had never done anything like that before. Wow. Sounds like a, an involved project. 18 months cross-functional across the university, representation from a lot of people and strong dean involvement was critical. Anything else you'd like to share today that I've neglected to ask? I guess the thing that I would want to share is that one of the things that I've done that I would really encourage other chief business officers to do is get out of the office. Mm. I, you know, I started my first job out of my MBA was with uh, HP, Hewlett Packard. And one of their strong concepts in the culture was this notion of management by wandering around. <laughs> and I sort of jokingly say that I do accounting by wandering around. And you can sit in your office a really long time and look at numbers on a spreadsheet or out of a report. But if you go out and talk to people that are on the grounds, they know what's going on. And I think it's even more important at a university because we do have such a hierarchy and we do have such a formal structure. And I somewhat jokingly say, but it's not so joking, um, that what gets reported at the president's cabinet meetings is really not as useful of information as what I need to do my job because it's been like, you know, packaged really nicely by the time it comes up. And if I can get down into the depths and talk to students and talk to faculty and talk to, you know, people on the ground, um, I just learn so much more. So that would be 
uh, advice I would certainly offer to anybody in the business office. The other thing I guess I would say, which really sort of surprised me, was um, recognizing that capitalism as a form of economic systems is not something that's fully embraced by all people at a university. And I didn't really realize that, you know, Mm. it just sort of, you know, I went to two business schools and I didn't really think about uh, the idea of if you're paying people market-based wages, that seems to be the right thing to do. And, and I had a student at one of my transparency forums pushing me on, you know, what did they pay me? And, and they, you know, I told them to look it up on the 990. So they did. And basically really questioning me whether I was worth the amount of money they were paying me. And I, I responded by talking about how we set compensation based on market. And unbeknownst to me, that night she went back and wrote an article for one of our social justice publications on how they pay the CFO too much money. And it's really all because a capitalist system is all about oppression of people that aren't in power. And so setting things to market rates are really completely inappropriate. And Boy, did that take me for surprise because I never would have thought it would have been just an unacceptable economic system. Uh, I had one of my math professors sharing something similar on that. And, you know, he, he really said it, I think, appropriately for an institution of higher education. He said, we know that capitalism as a system doesn't work. And so as an institution of higher education, it's incumbent upon us not to operate within that system. That takes us, you know, a CFO a little by surprise. <laughs> you know, I mean, my first response to him was, but we're in America. You know, it's just like, what? You know, but it's just, it's so, I think those are things that if you're new to higher education, you probably would be surprised that people say, no, the market is not what we can go on. That's, that's the wrong way to value things. Well, thank you so much, Connie, for your time today and for sharing just a snapshot of your career with us. Absolutely. My pleasure. You can find out more about Connie and today's episode by visiting the distance learning section of nakubo.org. Make sure you subscribe to CBO Speaks in iTunes so you get the latest episodes instantly. And on behalf of Connie and myself, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us for this episode of CBO Speaks. This episode of CBO Speaks is brought to you by Kaufman Hall. Learn about their strategic and financial consulting services and Axiom planning software by visiting kaufmanhall.com forward slash higher education.